Hi, this is Randall Schwartz, host of Floss Weekly. This week, Jonathan Bennett joins me. We're going to be talking about current news. It's a little unusual, but you're not going to want to miss this, so stay tuned. Floss Weekly is brought to you from LastPass Studios. Stay in control when it comes to your company's access points and authentication. LastPass makes enterprise-level security simple. Check out lastpass.com slash twit to learn more. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Floss Weekly with Randall Schwartz and Jonathan Bennett. Episode 569, recorded March 11th, 2020. News Potpourri. This episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by Melissa. Bad data happens to good companies. That's why 10,000 businesses count on Melissa for clean, reliable address data. Get started today with 25,000 records cleaned for free. That's a $75 value at melissa.com slash twit. And by ExpressVPN. Protect your online privacy with one click. For three extra months free with a one-year package, go to expressvpn.com slash floss. It's time for Floss Weekly, the show about free Libre open source software. I am your host, Randall Schwartz, Merlin at Sledge.com, bringing you each week the movers, the shakers, the big projects, little projects, projects you may be using every day and not aware of it, projects you might want to play with right after this show. I don't think today is going to be either one of those, but joining me once again is my lovely and talented co-host, Jonathan Bennett. Jonathan, welcome back to the show. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. I feel like I'm becoming something of a fixture on Floss Weekly. <laughs> I believe you're still getting the majority of all of the co-host slots in the last, uh, I guess, probably two years. So I think probably it adds up quite quickly. Um, We normally have a wonderful guest each week. Uh, This week there was some snafus. I will just leave it at that and not really point fingers to anybody. Uh, So this week is going to be a bit of an unusual show. And Jonathan, you're helping me out with this one. we're going to be doing news topics, uh, things that are happening around the net, uh, particularly around like coronavirus, things like that, and and uh, other like security topics that you're familiar with. And you're going to be yes. mostly driving this show, so I'm mostly going to be just an interviewer asking you questions. So that's kind of our relationship today. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, and of course, because it's Floss Weekly, we're going to be doing the uh, the the news topics that are. Uh, uh, concerning open source software, we're going to look at the open source uh, angle on all of these. But yeah, that's what we're doing. Mostly that, yes, mostly. And uh, I, uh, unfortunately, I dashed out of my Tijuana apartment last week a little too fast. So I, uh, as you noticed at the beginning of the show, I didn't have my normal fez on. It's because I can't do a confessional properly. Um, and so it's a, it's a little weird today. Uh, I'm also using uh, my webcam is also down there in Tijuana, so I'm using the FaceTime webcam on my laptop, so it's a little bit less quality than it normally is. But I do have my big blue Yeti, which is something I don't have when I'm down in Tijuana, so uh, that'll all get reset when I go back to Tijuana in a week and a half. Then I'll be able to uh, get those all back together. So uh, uh, is there anything you want to say before I read the first ad and get into the show? Uh, no, nothing comes to mind. We'll certainly get into it once we get into the rest of the show. So go for it. Absolutely. So let's talk about this very important message because this episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by the leader in address verification, Melissa. Every address is covered from Adelaide, Australia to Zipicata, Colombia and everywhere in between. We all know there's nothing good about bad data. It costs money, hurts sales and decreases customer satisfaction. If bad addresses, duplicate records and bouncing emails are hurting your business, isn't it time to come clean with Melissa? Delta Fawcett, Z1 Motorsports and Car2Go use Melissa. You should, too. Delta Fawcett was able to improve their call center processes with global address autocompletion. Melissa was able to reduce the fraudulent e-commerce transactions for Z1 Motorsports by 90%. Melissa provides a full spectrum of data quality protection for your customer data. Verify postal addresses, mobile numbers, and email addresses. Update the addresses of customers that have moved and eliminated duplicate records. Gain additional customer insight into your data with Melissa's analytics. Easily build address verification and customer data validation into your custom application using Melissa's APIs, CRM cloud connectors, and e-commerce plugins, or upload your customer file for a quick data cleanse. Melissa is serious about securely managing your data. They continually undergo independent security audits to reinforce their commitment to data security, privacy, and compliance requirements. 
SOC2, HIPAA, and GDPR compliant. Mailers spend about $20 billion annually in undeliverable mail. Do not lose customers or cash. Make every address count. Bad data happens to good companies. That's why 10,000 organizations worldwide trust Melissa to get their customer data clean and accurate. Get started today with 25,000 records cleaned for free. That's a $75 value at melissa.com slash twit. That's melissa.com slash T-W-I-T or call 1-800-MELISSA to find out more. And we thank Melissa for their support of Floss Weekly. Let's go ahead and get into it. What's our first topic uh, there, uh, Jonathan? So the 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 one that I've, I've picked for on the top is uh, the Supreme Court is going to be hearing arguments in the big Oracle versus Google case. And it's important because they're going to try to figure out whether or not APIs are copyrightable. Ooh, and this is important uh, because it's something that's affecting Android. It's actually part of the reason I think that uh, Google's actually working on Fuchsia, but I only have a hint that that's actually true. I, I'm sure that that was part of that uh, part of that thought process. You know, Google, as big as they are, has to have a plan B for if this ruling really goes uh, against them. The big thing, though, is it it impacts all of us. It's not just about Android. It's about uh, any time someone re-implements APIs, languages, uh, any of those things. And so there's some there's some interesting ramifications. The the Ars Technica article that I'm I'm referencing. They talk about something that I had never thought of, and that is the uh, the structured query language. Did you know that that was originally put together by IBM? IBM published a white paper about it, and uh, surprise, surprise, Oracle, based on that white paper, made their own implementation of SQL? Yeah, and it was originally called SQL, which is why people still call it SQL, which annoys me because that's not the name of it. So it's uh, – but when uh, IBM did it, it was SQL. Um, and, and let's let's back up a step. So, what is an API? Oh, sure. So, an API. Oh, let's see. What does that actually stand for? Uh, is it something something programming interface? Uh, it's <laughs> application. essentially application uh, app- programming interface. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Yeah. It's a, I think you're right. It, it's essentially a a set of functions and calls that allows you to 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 do what you need to do with the language. Um, I mean, it's it's things as simple as um, maybe I think in Java there's a there's a an API call that's sum open parentheses and then your your two numbers and then close parentheses, and right. that's one of the ways that you can add to add two integers or values together, and so right. it's it's these usually it's these really really basic things that you kind of have to be able to do to be able to do anything with the language. And as, as I understand this uh, the Supreme Court thing, the, what, what's actually being decided is that. Uh, back when uh, Sun was a separate organization and not part of Oracle, there was a sort of a handshake agreement between Sun and uh, uh, whoever owns the APIs, uh, whoever owns Java at the time. Well, uh, Sun owns Java, right? Uh, Sun owns Java, yeah, and it was Google. Yeah, and, and they basically said uh, – and Google – oh, yeah, Google then went and used it. And there was a handshake agreement between Google and Sun saying – yeah, you can go ahead and use all of the Java APIs. That's fine. But there was never a formal agreement for that. And then when Oracle bought Sun, they went, oh, we have some intellectual property here now that we can go after uh, Google with. And so that's been the fight here. The fight has been that there was never a formal agreement between uh, between Sun, which became Oracle, and Google, and so Google's been using these APIs uh, in Android and a few other things, and and now we're finally they've been back and forth in court. I don't remember all the gyrations of this, but this is interesting. That's finally coming up to the Supreme Court. So hopefully this will all get uh, sorted out. So um, it'll be it'll be yeah, fun the, seeing how that comes out. The the first yeah. court that took a look at it, the, uh, the I, I don't know, I don't remember if the judge learned how to program to be able to be intelligent about the case or if he already knew some programming. But the judge actually knew his stuff and looked at it and went, well, an API is just like a recipe. It's not a copyrightable thing at all. So there's not even a case here. And the – I don't remember how many lines of code it was decided that Google actually copied out. But it was it was like 35 or 40 lines of code that actually got copied 
And they said, it's, it's so trivial, it's fair use. And of course, you know, a, a lot of us went, oh, well, that's good for all of us because, of course, APIs can't be copyrighted. You know, there's there would be a huge problem if they could. Was, this would this would make a lot of things more difficult. And, and so I, people as are looking I recall, at. As I recall, it was, it's only just the uh, it's only just the, the fact that it's the .h file. You have to you have to comply with the .h file to be able to have people call you. Right. You know, so so it's like here's here's the .h file, which has to be a certain shape in order for people to call you and mm -hmm. to be compatible with other people's code. And, and and that was what was copied. So they copied the .h file, which, of course, yeah, it's technically a copy, but you can't change that. It's 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 the interface. It's 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 mm -hmm. how people are going to be able to call you from everywhere else. Yeah. So so we're all we're all watching the Supreme Court case because there's there's, a, there's I guess there's three possible outcomes. Sure. Um, I would consider the best case outcome to be the Supreme Court looks at this and goes. APIs, those .h files, are recipes for source code. Right, right. Copyright just doesn't even apply to them. Um, the the other way that they could look at it is, well, okay, copyright might be able to apply to them, but because of how all of this works, it's it's fair use to be able to use them. Right. And uh, you know that would that would work, but the whole fair use doctrine is is confusing and a mess, anyways. And then I guess the third possibility is they completely side with Oracle on this and say. Oracle, you're right, and then you know the whole software world's hair is on fire because this rule that we've assumed for years and years suddenly changed out from under us. Yeah, I mean we we can't we can't make it illegal to publish a .h file and use a .h file because otherwise the whole concept of of you know being able to have compatible software breaks. <laughs> yes, it would it would be it would be decidedly bad. We, should, we yeah. could just say that it would be bad. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Anything else you want to say on that before we move on to the next topic? No, I think we we covered that pretty well. I think we hammered it pretty well. So, uh, what's uh, Docker reimagines itself? What's that about? So, Docker back a few months ago sold off all of their enterprise offerings, and I don't remember the company that they sold it to. Um, but yeah. basically, all the things that they were doing that was making them money, <laughs> they let go yeah. and they sold. And so everyone was kind of – we were scratching our heads going, well, who who is Docker the company now? And uh, they they apparently were doing the same thing, <laughs> asking themselves that question. And they have decided that they are now returning to their developer roots. Um, they have decided to focus the remaining business back on developers. They are a developer tooling company now. <laughs> and I thought, and what, is that, I thought this what does that mean? You know, that's a really good question. I have not seen an answer to what that means besides, hey, we found some buzzwords that we can use. <laughs> wow. Wow. I, I find I find it interesting, though, because Docker is kind of in the same place that a lot of open source projects are. And that is, how do we actually we've got this really cool software. How do we actually make money for it? What's you know, what is a what is a business model that makes sense for us? And it's it's uh, it'll be interesting to see if Docker has actually figured that out or not. And you know, over the 13 years of the show, I've seen so many different models of how people have tried to make money. And I've seen a lot of models that uh, I know Simon Phipps gets mad at because it's open core. <laughs> so, um, but uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, how how do you make money giving stuff away? Uh, this is this is always a puzzle. When I, my, when I tell my friends about free software, they're always like, well, how do you make money at that yet then? So it's... Well, you know, you sell services, you sell platform, you sell, uh, you know, you, you sell customization, you do something. I wonder which way Docker is going to go on this. Well, one of the one of the problems that they've run into is so <clears throat> Docker and this idea of containerization. Of course, it was it it kind of shook the whole industry because it it allowed things like Kubernetes. Well, mm -hmm. Kubernetes is now where the the new hotness is. Everybody's excited right. about Kubernetes. Uh, and and you know the the platforms like them, and that puts Docker in this this really weird place where they are um, they are foundational technology to to what we're all doing, but they're not in the limelight anymore because everybody has moved on to Kubernetes and, and are thinking about that side of it, and so right. it's 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 put it, it's it's weird it's put Docker in this place where it's super important that they continue doing what they're doing and that the Docker project continues to be maintained and we get security updates, things like that. Uh, but nobody's talking about Docker anymore. Is, is Kubernetes 
require Docker? Is it still part of is that still part of the process? You know, I'm not sure. Uh, I've yeah. I've never had an application that I needed to scale up to the point where I wanted to use Kubernetes. I've used Docker. I've used raw Docker a few times. Um, so I'm I'm actually I, not sure the answer to that question. I, I know there's I know there's containers involved in Kubernetes somehow, but I'm not sure whether Docker is the only kind of container that is allowed there. But I think I think there's other kinds of containers that can go into Kubernetes. But now I'm showing my ignorance, and I should probably shut up because I don't want <laughs> I don't want my audience to think of how stupidly ignorant I actually am about this stuff. I I know that my clients are using Kubernetes, so I'm pretty happy with that. But uh, I, I think Docker's involved somehow, but I'm not exactly sure how. Yes. Uh, so I'll, I'll give the dirty secret away. When we cover this many topics in a show, we don't have time to deep dive into all of them. So <laughs> Sure, <laughs> so sure. We just, just keep moving forward. Yes, right. 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 I, I like the next topic, though. Let's move on to that, which is uh, conferences doing virtual or delayed. So, you know, coronavirus, big thing. The COVID-19, big issue with a lot of people. A lot of conferences are, are canceling or going virtual uh, what what are some of the ones you've listed here? So one of the one of the big things that first caught my attention is this this doesn't just apply to you know the uh, the the mobile conference the the big one that got canceled. This doesn't just apply to E3, which just in the last few minutes got officially announced that it's mm -hmm. canceled. You know this this applies to all of the open source conferences and the Linux conferences. Uh, right. Speaking of Kubernetes, uh, Kubicon is one of the ones that that got uh, is uh, let's see postponed. Uh, SuseCon is is postponed. Uh, the the Southeast Linux Fest, uh, the Cloud Foundry Summit, a bunch of these are are pretty much all either postponed or going virtual, which is an interesting trend to see. Yeah, well, that certainly uh, saves the travel charges, which is which is basically it's part of my biggest budget uh, item each year, which is. Uh, I just got back from uh, Scale, which uh, so I paid you know a good amount of money for the hotel there and and the flights there and things like that. And uh, if that had all been just virtual for me, and what's funny is uh, because I didn't want to ex exceed my exposure, I only went to two of the four days. So here I was, mm -hmm. actually physically on site, and I didn't go to two of the four days just because I didn't want to you know increase my exposure because. You know, the last thing I want to be is a carrier to go and take take the disease other places. So um, I'm uh, I'm generally pretty healthy. I mean, considering how much I travel, uh, I'm amazed I don't get more sick uh, just because I'm constantly in big metal tubes flying at 30,000 feet and uh, hanging hang out with people. Although I do have a slight bit of a cough. I hope that's not hope that's not picking up the disease. We'll see. Uh, uh -huh. The the most ironic thing, though, is I just saw this item in the news. There's a coronavirus <laughs> conference that got canceled because of the coronavirus. <laughs> so first I have to ask, who yeah. thought it was a good idea to have an in-person <laughs> coronavirus conference? <laughs> uh, by the way, all these links will be in the show notes, so we'll, we'll give that to you so you don't have to, like, uh, try to figure out or Google for all this stuff. Well, uh, But, yeah, that's uh, – I also know that uh, one of the sh uh, shows I was offered to go to uh, because of my status as a Google uh, developer expert, GDE, is uh, Google I.O. And they were offering to uh, fly me to Google I.O. And it got canceled. So it's now just virtual. So that'll be interesting to see that online instead of uh, actually flying down there. Um, so, Randall, what what do you think about virtual conferences? What's What's your opinion on a conference going virtual? There's a lot that happens in the hallway track that would all disappear. Uh, I mean, part of what I enjoy about going to OSCON and scale and things like that is that I get to bump into people in the hallways and just have random conversations or bump into people at the at the uh, you know the dinners or the bars or whatever. And the, there's 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 a lot of there's a lot of spontaneous stuff that happens there that's really hard to define. Um, and that's not going to happen if what you have is a focused, you know, broadcast of, you know, we're, we're showing room seven now on the main feed that, that, that won't be happening. You know, even if, even if you have interaction in the chat room about it, it's, it's still not going to be the same. Um, so I think we're going to lose out on some of the progress in uh, humanity because of this. But 
on the other hand, if we avoid killing a few more people, that might be a good thing. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, yes. I, I think it, I think if more people survive because we're only having virtual conferences, I think it's probably a good thing. And uh, I look forward to the day where we say coronavirus is sort of uh, mastered. We're we're good. We're beyond it. Uh, but I I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, despite what our uh, what our um, commander in chief is saying. Um, I think we're still a ways away from that, and I think we're still. Uh, uh, I think we're still going to have to be watching out for things. I really hope, uh, and I, I mentioned this already on my Facebook thread. Um, I did a, a thread called uh, "Coronavirus: uh, Twelve Monkeys Discuss." <laughs> it was like, <laughs> uh, it was like, are we living that movie out now? Is that how it's working out? I don't. I hope not. I really hope not. I really hope that uh, this sort of calms itself down before we get to the point where, you know, 60% of the population is infected. It's it's just a little scary to me. But uh, but I, I, I do appreciate that uh, people are having the wherewithal to cancel conferences, make them virtual, uh, you know, and, and I, I'm going to miss the camaraderie. Um, I know that my friend uh, uh, Captain Neil is having problems because the uh, – the next cruise ship he has, uh, people are canceling on his on his show, and and including some of his speakers. So he's scrambling to try to cover that, and that's going to be that's going to be trouble for everybody who's in the travel industry. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I just booked a trip uh, a week and a half from now to go back down to uh, Tijuana, mostly to pick up all my stuff I left there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, I, you know, I I I'm like, okay, I'm risking being in a metal tube again with. Uh, you know, people uh, at 30,000 feet, uh, only because I also know that uh, it doesn't seem to have hit Tijuana yet. So uh, I'm probably okay getting there. And I was a little worried uh, a couple days ago because I was going from L.A. to Portland in a big metal tube. And I was like, okay, hmm, you know, am I am I going to pick anything up while I'm there in L.A. or or here at Portland again or somewhere in the plane in between? Um, but, you know... Like I said, I, I for some reason I've I've been pretty impervious to uh, to uh, various diseases, and I've been exposed to tons and tons and tons of different people all over the world, actually. So I'm I'm pretty sure I've got a pretty good immune system. So and I, I'm staying in pretty good health. So we'll see. The tequila kills the virus, right? Uh, Tijuana should be fine. Uh, I don't know that tequila kills everything. I, 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 if that was the case, if that was the case, I would be sort of impervious here as well. So, um, but no, no, it's uh, it's a, uh, it, but tequila definitely has this advantage. You know, it's 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 uh, it's an alcohol cleanse from the inside. Yes, definitely. And it is uh, what's what's this open source collaboration tackles COVID? What's that? About? Oh, so this. This is this is something new. Um, this is something that just came across my radar. It's it's a group of people. Uh, I think they're mainly medical researchers that said, right now there's not a good uh, body of information about how to test for COVID nineteen, and so let's put a group together and see if we can put essentially an open source project together with information and maybe even instructions on testing, maybe even an open source test kit on. Uh, how to test for COVID-19. And then mm. I think the group's only been in existence for 10 days. So there's no, you know, there's no actual results to look at yet. But I thought it was right. interesting because there's people trying to take this, the, the open source mindset mantra and apply it to these different things like medicine. And I think that's just really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it, it, this is, this is one of the interesting things about uh, just in general uh, open source, because it's a collaborative thing. And it, it really sort of embodies what people do with medical research is that they share these ideas and be able to uh, be able to build on each other's research. It's it's really important that we be able to do that. So, um, um, yeah, that's a uh, it, it's it's it, it's clever. Um, it, it's also sad because it, it, it turns out that there's enough stuff being done, sort of this proprietary stuff. I mean, you take a look at the cost of diabetes medicine, that it's it's now going through the roof at the point where some uh, states are actually putting caps on how much insulin can cost. 
And uh, if we had like an open source version of insulin, maybe we could keep that down. So um, I don't know. I, it's We live in interesting times. And, of course, we don't have a real medical system in the U.S., which is another whole scary topic. But let's not get really distracted <laughs> by that. Let's not get distracted. Well, yeah. Go, so sorry. there, there is there is an example. It's interesting you mentioned insulin. There is an example of another open source group um, that that is kind of taking on one of these medical problems. It's been around for years and years. Uh, people that have type one diabetes and right. have insulin pumps. There's a group that said, well, we're not supposed to. And I think I think technically the FCC says they're not allowed to. Not not the FCC. The uh, the <laughs> FDA says they're not yeah. allowed. Well, the FCC may say it too. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> says you're not allowed to do this. But this group of hackers basically said we can reprogram our own insulin pumps. And right. rather than waiting 30 days to get a new program from the doctor, we can take our blood sugar and punch it in right then. And they're called loopers. Basically, they they close loop. And they turn their insulin pump from a, uh, a a tool that tries to catch a butterfly with a battle axe into a a homemade virtual uh, you know insulin producer like their body is supposed to. And doctors aren't allowed to tell people that they can do this. <laughs> right. Um, it's it's it it may be technically illegal to do this. But man, it is such a a change of uh, of what your life looks like for someone with type one diabetes when they come across this information, and so long as they do it safely, you know, it's just it's a it's a radical change for someone, and it's all because of again this this open source mindset. You know, what scares me is that uh, this is slightly off topic, but since we talk a lot about security with with you, is the idea of Wi-Fi enabled uh, body devices that they're uh, hackable and uh, people can remotely program them, uh, hacking into them. It's like, oh. Um, I remember being in a conversation with, uh, oh, I forget his name. Um, uh, oh, man, something brown. Um, uh, and he asked me, would you, would you put an implantable device in your brain? Uh, and I said, absolutely not. Especially if it's <laughs> Wi-Fiable, because people will hack into it. I don't want to do that. And he goes, mm -hmm. "Why wouldn't you want that?" I go, "Because I don't want people to hack into me," you know. And, and then, so then I would over the years I've been sending him clippings when I find them of people who have hacked into various you know network enabled devices. And he goes. You were right. You were right. People could do this. I go, that's exactly what I was saying a decade ago when you first asked me the question. Why I didn't want to have some some device in my in my brain. Uh, uh, Stephen Ewan Cobb, that's his name. Sorry, I want to make sure he gets credit for that. Uh, he wrote a couple really good books. Uh, I met him at, a, at, a, at a Dragon Con, actually, many, many years ago. Um, mm -hmm. But he couldn't figure out why I didn't want an implantable device in my body, even if it would enhance me. And I said, no, no, I just, because it's, it's too easy to hack. It's too easy to hack. It's bad enough having just something wait. running windows up there. Yeah, sorry. Just just wait for the uh, first ransomware attack that uh, hit something embedded in people's bodies. Oh, I know, I know. So this is this is why I'm, I'm, I'm really, I, I'm concerned about all this stuff. I'm concerned that we don't understand enough about computer security. We definitely don't understand enough about computer security. Um, uh, to to build devices. I mean, we can't even build. We can't even build. Uh, what is it, light bulbs that aren't hackable? You know, it, it's like it's just it's just crazy. Anyway, uh, I do have a lot more to talk about, but before we do that, I do actually have a one more important message to read because. This episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Most of us like to browse the internet without the rest of the world knowing what we're doing. Speaking of all that, uh, we all know about incognito windows and browsers, but did you know that even in incognito mode, your online activity can still be traced? Even if you clear your browsing history, your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why you should never go online without using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN makes sure your ISP can't see what sites you visit. Instead, your internet connection is rerouted through ExpressVPN's secure servers. Each ExpressVPN server has an IP address that's shared among thousands of users. This means everything you do is anonymized and can't be traced back to you. 
ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your data with the best-in-class encryption, so your information is always protected, even when you're using public Wi-Fi, like at a cafe or hotel. Use the Internet in confidence from your computer, tablet, or smartphone. ExpressVPN has you covered on every device. Simply tap one button, and you're protected. ExpressVPN is the fastest, most trusted VPN on the market. It's rated number one by TechRadar, Wired, The Verge, and others. Protect your online activity with a VPN that I trust to secure their privacy. Visit my special link, expressvpn.com slash floss, and you get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com slash floss. Expressvpn.com slash floss to learn more. And we appreciate ExpressVPN for their sponsorship of Floss Weekly. So what's next on the list there? Uh, well, if we want to if we want to talk about it, there have been uh, more security problems, uh, speculative execution problems in both Intel and AMD chips. Want to dive into that? Sure, let's do it. All right. Uh, so first, there is uh, there's one in Intel where it's possible to uh, instead of reading from memory that you're not supposed to be able to read to, someone discovered that they could write to memory they weren't supposed to be able to write to. And speculative, speculative execution happens, and data was able to be exfiltrated from secure enclaves inside of the Intel chips. Uh, which so there, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of terms and buzzwords we kind of need to define here. Uh, yeah, we'll start please. at the end and we'll work backwards. So secure enclave that is that is an Intel idea. You see it in some other chips as well, but it's an Intel idea of there's something here that we need to be extra super careful with maybe even the kernel itself shouldn't be able to read this data and so you can you can write an application where your encryption keys go in a secure enclave um, maybe the encryption keys for a, an encrypted virtual machine are inside this secure enclave uh, things of that nature and and someone someone discovered that well this secure enclave we can get into it using speculative execution. Well, what's speculative execution? Well, it's the idea that to, to get these to get these processors running as fast as they do now, they they execute things out of order, or they. So you have to th you have to think about source code. If you have an if statement, you have a branch, and so your your execution can go. You know, if such and such is true, your execution goes one direction, and if such and such is false, your execution goes another direction. And what the processor does is, while it's waiting for that value to to settle, essentially to true or false, it goes ahead and it executes down both branches. And then, if it becomes true, it unwinds the false branch and jumps ahead to the true branch where it, where it got to an execution, and vice versa. And back. Oh, back a few years ago, someone discovered that that speculative execution changes the internal state of the processor, um, generally speaking, by loading things into the processor's cache. And it's, it's subtle, and it's not something that you're intended to be able to discover. But through some different timing attacks, it's possible to learn things about that internal state. And so this, this, was, this was Meltdown, this was Spectre. Uh, and basically it's the idea of we can attempt to read and the processor will, in, in, a, in a speculative execution mode, it will do that read and that read will load things into cache. And mm -hmm. then the processor will discover, oh, wait, this process wasn't supposed to have access to that read and it unwinds it, but that data is still in cache. And then there's this this it, really the clever part of this I think was that they then went from the cache and tried to access based on that data that they did have access to, and then let's see how did this go? And then from the thread where they actually had access to it, they then once again accessed that data and did a timing lookup on essentially uh, the data that they're trying to access. How long did it take? And one chunk of data is going to be significantly, <clears throat> significantly faster to access, and that gives you information about what's over here in this this area of memory that you weren't supposed to be able to access, but the processor did in this speculative execution mode. Now I want to say this: the, uh, this, this enclave is also in like the iPhone, and it's one of the reasons that. Um, Apple couldn't release some data that uh, the FBI wanted. So 
it's it's a similar idea. Uh, Apple over in their iPhones and their processors, it does have a secure enclave. It is the it's the same term. I'm not sure exactly how related the two technologies are. Um, okay. I mean, obviously they're they're both kind of getting at the same idea. Um, but as far as as far as this story goes, there's not a whole lot in common, I don't think. Um, but anyway, with with this one, someone basically took a look at this upside down and backwards and said, rather than trying to read what happens if we write data. And uh, I haven't done a deep dive into exactly what's happening here with these Intel chips. Um, but I know there's quite a few uh, quite a few of them that are covered. And it it does. It lets somebody look into this secure enclave. And so, you know, it, it would let an attacker do something like um, if they get access to a hypervisor and there is an encrypted virtual machine running on that box, they can potentially get the encryption keys and get into the virtual machine, even though, you know, the Intel documentation says that that should be absolutely impossible. Wow. Wow. Okay. Um, so what's the... Uh What's the downside of this, and is there a protection against it? So the the protection against it historically, well, there's 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 two ways to go about trying to protect from this. One is redesigning your chips so that you protect against these kind of attacks, which Intel has done some of that, and I, I believe the absolutely bleeding edge Intel chips are not uh, not vulnerable to this latest attack. And uh, oh, okay, I, so sorry. It's only if you're using older older chips, then, right? We're, right, but we're not talking about super old chips. Like, uh, and I don't I don't have the information in front of me. I, I'm not seeing it in the article here. But it's you know, if you're using something older than say nine months, then you might have this problem. And so that right, okay. represents a lot of the servers out there in data centers are, are at least that old. Well, um, it's like my laptop is like two years old, so I imagine it would be vulnerable to this. Yeah, yeah, probably. Wow. Um, and then. The, the other way to mitigate against this, and this is what we saw with, uh, with Spectre and Meltdown and, and all of the speculative execution attacks since then, is you've got to do special things in the kernel to overwrite all of this caching every time you do a context switch. So wow. every time you go from running kernel code to running user code and then going back to kernel code, you've got to essentially flush all of your cache out. Uh, you know, in some of the attacks, it's it's been flush the flush the cache lines, or so you know, part of just the make sure. Part of the problem is Go that ahead. you're 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 up against you're up against what's efficient versus what's secure, and that's always yes. been a trade-off over the decades. It's like, you know, what's easy is not necessarily what's secure. Yeah, and and the thing with this though is we didn't realize Intel and AMD as well didn't realize that this was a trade-off in processors, you know, because I mean, we're talking at a lower level than what code runs. We're talking essentially on the micro code that the processor is running and, right. and these, these subtle state changes that happens inside the processor that, you know, by design code is never supposed to be able to get at. And so there was never, you know, as far as we can tell beyond five or six years ago, whenever the first attack was released, there was never a consideration of, Oh, somebody might be able to make a timing attack against, what we have loaded into cache and learn things from it. Right. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of a brave new world where we're starting to look at, oh, well, all of these hacks that we have in these processors to make them execute faster, there is potentially a security downside to it. And that's, we're, we're still, you know, Intel, AMD, and I'm sure ARM is uh, to the same extent is trying to figure this out. Where, where does this acceptable balance lie? And what does the next generation of this kind of attack look like? Is it still true that there's like a full operating system running inside the chips, like CPM or something? I remember reading that somewhere a long time ago. Oh, yes, yes. So um, both both Intel and AMD chips, um, one of them actually has an ARM core embedded in their chips. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't remember if that's – that maybe both of them actually use an ARM core. Uh, and I think Intel has been talking about actually changing that and using a, a RISC-V core. Um, but yeah, they've got they've got a little tiny core inside of each of those chips that's not even x86 that does things like power management and some of this security code. Uh, yeah. There was a there was a really there was a really cool hack that I wrote up. This has been a couple of years ago now, where someone discovered that um, I think it was 
I think it was Via chips, which, you know, that's kind of the third x86 processor maker, um, had one of these little cores embedded in it. And there was a way to execute code on that core. And so this guy discovered a, uh, a way to jump from user land directly into like this ring negative one area where he could run ARM arm code on this x86 chip it was just the craziest <laughs> thing oh it's ridiculous I'll, I'll have to dig that up and put it in the show notes because that's a really yeah. cool story great uh, yeah cool sorry for distracting you but i, I remember reading oh, about right. that somewhere yeah yeah okay so uh, uh and then, is that it on that topic or are we going moving on we well i'll, more I'll just to cover. we have a bunch more topics i don't think we're going to get to all of them um Okay. I will mention that uh, AMD has not been hit nearly as hard by these speculative execution attacks. And a lot of people have suspected that that's because more people have been looking at Intel chips at AMD chips. And uh, based on this newest article, uh, that seems to be the case. Um, a couple of attacks, but they're, they're both based on this idea of you know, what gets loaded up into cache and, and what the chip is predicting. And uh, AMD chips from 2011 all the way up to now today uh have this this potential attack that uh that can leak information out and so it it looks like amd is going to have the same problems uh it's just a matter of, of going out and finding them wow. <laughs> so one one funny one funny thing about this one uh load reload collide plus probe and load plus reload those are what the two attacks are called um yeah. people have been pointing out that in the paper there's this little footnote at the end saying we thank intel for their uh <laughs> For their monetary support of this research. <laughs> oh, nice. 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 So in, in, Intel got tired of being the only ones getting hit by these and said, hey, why don't you guys – we'll give you some money. You guys go see if you can find something in AMD chips. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. All right. So what's next? Um, so this one is interesting because it's uh, it ties into what's I believe next week as we're talking about F-Droid, next week or the week after. Um, yep. It's mobile privacy apps. So uh, apps that are supposed to be giving you VPN service and doing ad blocking, these closed source applications are actually spying on your Android and iOS device and sending all that data up to the corporation that is making the applications. <laughs> eek, eek. So it's, it's exactly the opposite of what it's trying to promote. I mean, it's basically saying I, I'm private, but in fact, it's actually shipping data somewhere. Yes. So there's this company, uh, Sensor Tower. It, it's a firm that bills itself as the leading provider of market intelligence and insights for the global app economy. And they've okay. done what a lot of these companies have done. They've spun out and started you know, little sub-corporations, wholly owned corporations that are security and privacy corporations. <laughs> well, nobody realized that they were actually owned by marketing firms. And oh. uh, yeah, so you, you've got uh, see the, the two uh, – Adblock Focus and Luna VPN are the two applications that this article from Ars Technica mentions. And mm -hmm. uh, they are – yeah, they may block ads and yes, they may give you a VPN. But they are also stealing all of your data. Uh, not, not, not passwords, assumably, but you know, your browsing data and all of that metadata that it would be nice if it stayed just to you. Uh, I use a couple of different VPNs, and uh, I'm hoping that neither of them are in this category. But uh, is there any way to know an exhaustive list of, of who's actually doing this? Uh, well, the two short answers are use open source software, which is yes. what's really cool about the the F-Droid store. They only put – and we'll, we'll talk to them here in a couple of weeks, and then they'll tell you all right. about this. But F-Droid only runs – only supports – only has software that you can download that is fully open source. And yep. they will even do a, a – I'm sure it's a very surface level, but they will do a real quick audit to make sure that it's not doing things like this. And then the other answer is use open source software and roll your own VPN. Run something like OpenVPN or WireGuard and, and just you know put it on your laptop, put it on your home router and uh, roll your own. And that way you know that nobody is spying on you. Right. Makes sense. Makes sense. Okay, cool, cool. And uh, let's go on to the next topic then. Uh, AMD hiring another open source developer. This is really cool. So AMD, um, we'll, we'll, we'll stop bashing them for security problems and we'll start praising them <laughs> for their, their open source drivers of their, uh, of their stuff, their components. Specifically here, it's graphics cards. Okay. Um, 
So we're, we're talking mainly about, about Linux here, but a lot of these drivers do make their way over to OpenBSD because, you know, both are Unix, and so there's some compatibilities there, and, and some of the source code gets shared. Um, back years ago, uh, trying to run a video card on a Linux box was just an exercise in pulling your hair out. I mean, oh, there, right, yes. there, was, there was proprietary drivers, but they generally were terrible. Um, and AMD made this decision, decision several years ago that they said, rather than running all of this as our own closed source proprietary driver, let's start re-implementing this open source in the kernel. And right. they did, and it took you know it took a couple of years, obviously, for that project to come to fruition. But there is now excellent support for these video cards in the Linux kernel for AMD video cards, and uh, AMD apparently is having so much success with this that they are looking for another high-level kernel dev that they can hire, put on their payroll, and basically point at these devices and say, "Go dive into the kernel mailing list, go dive into the code, and, and make this support better." And I just I think it's great to see a you know a big company like this going out of their way. And I mean, it makes sense for their, their business model too, but going out of their way to support the open source, not just open source software, but the open source drivers that make it all work. Wow. Cool. Cool. Well, that's uh, that's good to hear that, that, uh, you know, open source is being more and more embraced by traditional, um, you know, proprietary companies, um, especially when it means more stuff is available. I remember the, there was a huge issue, you know, a, a dozen years ago where the, the video driver people would give you a, a, a binary blob that you'd have to insert mm -hmm. into your kernel in order to be able mm -hmm. to actually talk to their video card. And it's nice to see that that's now all coming back around as open source. Yeah, and, and there is there is still, to some extent, uh, a bit of a binary, binary blob in there in the form of firmware. Um, yeah. But, you know, that's that's way less onerous than saying, hey, you need to patch your kernel with this binary thing that you can't look into and you don't know what it's doing and it's yeah. you know running with kernel privileges and it can crash your computer at any time just trust us <laughs> no thanks awesome awesome well let's go on to the next thing because we're almost out of time so let's uh, let's yeah. try to see if we can get through all the rest of these topics here what is xfat xfat that is uh that is microsoft's uh fancy new um new file new new um a hard drive format, you know, they've got they've yeah. got the file allocation table fat, they've got NTFS, the XFAT is their newest and best and shiniest file system. And uh, interestingly, XFAT is one that has been covered by patents for the last few years. And yeah. so places like the Linux kernel and the BSDs kind of had to say, thanks, but no thanks, we can't touch that because of the patent issues. And uh, what's really interesting is in the last couple of years, I think it's about a year ago, Microsoft joined the uh, the Linux Foundation and the Open. Oh, there's a there's a patent group like an Open Patent Initiative or something. And they they've joined these places and they've then committed and they said, look, we're going to add our patents to your pool of open patents. And so yeah. a, a lot of a lot of things have gotten opened up because of this. But one of the things is EXFAT, and so Microsoft has intentionally said, hey, we're going to make it legally possible for Linux and the BSDs to have drivers to access EXFAT uh, file systems. And then, you know, so somebody started working on one and it was a, a driver for EXFAT and it was kind of terrible. And then Samsung came along and said, hey, we happen to have this uh, because of their work with Android. We happen to have this EXFAT driver that's in pretty good shape. Let's just add it to the uh, Linux kernel since Microsoft now says it's okay. And so wow. you've got – again, it's kind of the same deal. You've got these two big, huge companies that are coming to Linux and the BSDs and saying it will just make our lives easier if we just open source all of this and put it right in the kernel. I think it's amazing. Nice. nice. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's really slick. Definitely slick. Um, okay. Uh, a couple more items before we uh, run out of time here. So right to repair. I was hoping we would get to this, and this is the other side of the coin. Um, I'm I'm going to call out a big company here that is not doing this right, and that is, of all the places, John Deere. Yellow and green, they make the tractors. They make the tractors sure. and make the food that we all eat. Um, John Deere puts proprietary code into their tractors, uh, and and it makes it such that a farmer cannot repair their own hardware. 
and there has been there has been this big fight, used mainly out of the the United States heartland. You know, Nebraska is where this particular article is out of. Uh, yeah. These farmers that basically said, "Look, it is the most ridiculous thing for our tractors to turn themselves off because of a firmware issue, and then we have to wait." eight hours for a technician to come out, plug his laptop into it and reset the codes. And uh, from what I understand, John Deere is using uh, laws like the the Digital Millennium Copyright Act to oh. bind the hands of these guys and say, well, no, we have copyright on this stuff and we have, um, you know, we have intellectual property uh, protections built into it. You, you can't do anything yourself because you aren't, you know, an authorized uh, vendor. And so these guys, these, these farmers, their hands are tied in being able to work on their own equipment and it's terrible. Um, and they had this piece of legislation that they were trying to get into the, the Nebraska state house, um, to look at, to say, look, ownership really does mean ownership. And regardless of what any other law says, if we own a piece of property, a tractor, we have the right to work on it. And unfortunately, that particular law got killed before it got voted on. Ooh. But as a result of that, um, it's it's picking up uh, a little bit wider press, and more people are are beginning to understand the problem. Um, but there's some there's some interesting um, second order effects we could say, or or interesting applications of this. You know, if we get a if we get a law that says you really own your hardware and you have the right to repair it, well. That's going to apply to a place like Apple as well. And, uh, you know, Apple is is real interested in being the only people that work on their hardware. So th- this is right. this is an interesting one for more than just John Deere tractors and farmers in the middle of Nebraska. Yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's either an intended or unintended consequence of the DMCA, too, which has really been a, a thorn in lots and lots of different decisions over the last 25 years um, where it's it, it, it really messes up the ability for me to really own my data, own my, uh, own my experience. Uh, and, uh, it actually, uh, Phoenix warp one in the chat room says, uh, tractors have code. Now are you saying tractors are Tesla level equipped? <laughs> so, uh, I don't know that that's what that actually means, but there's definitely, you know, there's firmware in my, uh, Camaro and I'm sure I can't do anything with, you know, they're, they're, because I don't have access to, you know, the programmers for it, the uh, the analysis tools for it. Uh, I know there's like the OBD one that I can plug in and it can kind of do some of the stuff, but there, there's really a lot of everything is so much smarter now. I mean, I'm sure there are there are microwaves and blenders that have uh, <laughs> programming in them that that I can't fix, I can't change, I can't modify. And this gets to be a problem of we we we've moved out of um, a hacker uh, universe where people can just manipulate things, you know. Because back before there was firmware in uh, in cars, you know, you could go in and tweak the carburetor or whatever, right? And 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 yeah. and, and and tune it. You can't do that now. You have to be able to get into the the actual firmware and make it better. Um, and are we going to keep moving in that direction as we start m- embedding more and more software uh, as firmware into uh, devices? Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things about this is it is easier to put a a tune. That's what the, that's what the kids call it these days. To tune a car, a brand new car, than it is one of these tractors. It it is it is pretty common to uh, <laughs> to put either put a chip or just do it straight through the the OBDC port and reprogram yeah. the firmware in your car to squeeze out a few more horsepower. But if wow. you try to do that to one of these John Deere tractors, well, one thing apparently most of them have a SIM card and a little cellular chip underneath the seat where that tractor is calling back updates to to Papa John Deere. Uh, and so they they would be aware of that pretty quick and apparently have come after a few people for doing it. Um, and then the other kind of weird thing about this is the thing that breaks the most often on these tractors is their uh, their emissions stuff. So, you know, especially these diesel engines, the, the laws about emissions are, are um, 
not to get political here, but they're a little onerous from time to time. And right. so you get things you get things happening on these tractors like they get too cold at night. And when you go to first start them up in the morning, uh, maybe the catalytic converter is not working the way it's supposed to because it's not warm enough yet. Well, the firmware sees the emissions on it is not up to spec and kills the tractor until an authorized repairman can come out and troubleshoot the problem and get it started again. Ew. Ew. Oh, it's okay. terrible. That's no good. All right, one last story, and then we're going to do my wrap-up. Uh, if, we, if we have one last story, let's talk about Let's Encrypt. This is one that kind of hit me. It's really uh. interesting. Let's Encrypt, it's the last one on the page here. Uh, let's Encrypt made a mistake. They goofed. And they sent out a message to like 3 million of us back a couple of weeks ago. And they said, hey, we accidentally did this thing where we issued a bunch of certificates that maybe we shouldn't have. And because the way the kind of the it, it's not law, but it's it's the agreement between the certificate issuers um, and so the, the certificate authorities and the browsers, they kind of get together and they they pass this regulation that that controls the way certificates ssl certificates are supposed to get issued right and right. uh let's let's encrypt has this kind of internal policy that we check your domain and that check is good for 30 days and so if you go to get a certificate for this domain and we've done this check within 30 days we don't have to repeat it right well there there is a thing inside of uh, uh certificates now that is a uh Oh, CAA, Certificates Agent Authority, I think is what it stands for. And essentially it's a flag in DNS that you set and you say, hey, um, for example, Komodo is the only company that I want to ever issue a certificate for this domain. Mm -hmm. And so it's 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 a neat idea. It's 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 there for security. But when they wrote this spec, they wrote and they said eight days if if you do this check and then you, you issue a certificate, and then you go to issue another certificate for the same domain. It's within eight days. You don't have to do the check again, but if it's any longer than that, you've got to run this check a second time. And right. there, was a, there was a bug in Let's Encrypt software that said uh, – So and, and they, they, they looked at this and they said, well, okay, so there's this time period between eight days and 30 days that we've got to run this one particular check again. But the mm -hmm. software messed the check up. And rather than checking all of the domains, they checked one domain multiple times. So if you oh. if you're getting a if you're getting a certificate that had three domains, uh, which you know is is pretty typical for for Let's Encrypt certificates, um, and you had you know you had this field set in your DNS, rather than checking the first one and then checking the second one and checking the third one, they checked the first one and then they checked the first one again and they checked the first one the third time, and Ooh. then issued the certificate. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. Yeah, that's no good. So obviously, so obviously, there's a bug there. But right. um, I, I think I think they they looked at it and there was like uh, there were just a handful. It was it was quite a few less than a thousand. Four hundred forty five. There were four hundred and forty five certificates that they issued that they shouldn't have issued. And so and and then there were like three million of them in total that were issued while this bug was in place. And because of the way that this this specification was written, they are required to go through and invalidate all of them. And so mm. Let's Encrypt sent out this email to you know a bunch of people and said, hey, in like five days, we're going to invalidate these three million certificates. Wow. <laughs> and, and suddenly, you know, every server administrator everywhere's hair is on fire as they're running around sure. trying to make sure. Well, so they they got to the deadline and they discovered that all 445 of the of the actual problematic certificates had already been taken care of but there was like okay. 1.7 million certificates that had not been updated so if they were to revoke them they would just flat out break these websites oh so let's encrypt said oh well okay we feel like we have a little bit more leeway here we're going to give you guys something like 30 days and that's where it's at now but i just okay. i thought the whole the whole uh, saga was was weird and interesting and uh, it's interesting because it's let's encrypt and so they're they're really transparent with all this stuff and we kind of get a view into the inner machinations of how all this is working yeah there's many ways to do this wrong and they did it <laughs> wrong interesting well, they, 
they did one thing. They did one thing wrong, and then it's really interesting to watch how they're they're trying to recover from that mistake and trying to do all the other things right. And uh, I, I gotta say, I I really like Let's Encrypt. I think there's some great people there yeah. working on it, and uh, I I I really like being able to again their transparency in this, be able to look into it and see what's going on and and the steps that they're taking. Well, and providing a way for everybody to have an SSL cert that uh, you know for free, which is really nice. It's uh, we didn't have an easy way of doing that more than like five years ago, so it's very very yeah. cool that they're doing that. Uh, we're out of time. Uh, you know, it's been wonderful to be chatting with you for. Uh, I didn't believe we would have like an hour's worth of news, but we actually <laughs> ran out of time. We actually had two other stories yes. we could have covered. But uh, I, I appreciate you bringing all the topics you brought to uh, today's show and. Uh, it also stepping up uh, when we had the little snafu with our, our guest, and hopefully we won't have another one of those snafus in the future. We'll figure out ways to make sure my email doesn't end up in their spam box, which is – we've had that twice <laughs> now before, which is really yep. sad. It's like I send out ordinary email, and then they never see it because it ends up in their spam box, which is – uh, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. It's, it's, it's the same mail I've been sending out for 13 years, and all of a sudden it's been uh, ending up in people's uh, spam boxes. But anyway, we'll figure that out. Uh, anyway, so like I said, we're out of time. I want to talk about who's coming up. Uh, next week we have XS Code, which is to turn your open source project into a steady revenue stream. That sounds promising. Boy, if I could do that with everything I'm doing, that would be great. Agonies. <laughs> Agonis, something like that, which is to host and run and scale dedicated game servers on Kubernetes. Speaking of Kubernetes, uh, yeah. F-Troid, which we, you mentioned a couple times in this show, F-Troid is an installable catalog of FOSS, free and open source software applications for the Android platform. The client makes it easy to browse, install, and keep track of updates on your device. Hydra, which is a reschedule, because again, Hydra was supposed to be on an earlier show, and somehow they never got my email, so now they're moved down. <laughs> Hopefully they'll get the email for the upcoming show. Uh, it's a framework for elegantly configuring complex applications. PIMCore, which uh, just got added last week, uh, creates frictionless, personalized customer experiences on top of your master data across all channels and touch points in real time. I'm certainly going to want Simon Phipps on that show. I have a feeling that is a huge open core <laughs> project. We'll see. Just added to the list, XCPNG, uh, based on a request from uh, one of our um, listeners, is a turnkey open source hypervisor. That should be fun. Uh, mm -hmm. Also added, based on a request from our uh, audience, Contractor, which is a builder of anything and is targeted to be used as a generic API to create, destroy, and manipulate your resources. So no matter where or what you, they are, this enables you to focus on what you want to make and not have to worry about the details and differences in deployment. Uh, again, uh, for the entire schedule and who we're working on and who, uh, uh, if, if you see somebody that's not on that list uh, at, uh, sorry, at twitch.tv slash floss, that's our big, uh, the homepage for this show. There's a link from there to our big spreadsheet. If you have any other suggestions, please tell the project leader or community coordinator to email me, especially if it's not about cryptocurrency. Oh, we didn't mention Bitcoin this time. Sorry, Bitcoin. <laughs> All right, we go. Done. Done. All right. Had to, had to mention it once for the chat room. Bitcoin. Maybe we did it twice. Okay. Uh, we have a live stream, which we took a couple questions from, 9.30 a.m. Pacific time on Wednesdays at live.twit.tv. You can also watch us behind the scenes, see what kind of mistakes we make. Um, you can follow us at, at Floss Weekly on Twitter. You can follow me at, at Merlin on Twitter, M-E-R-L-Y-N. Uh, we have a forum at uh, twit.community. Uh, we have a special dedicated uh, channel there, and you can uh, post questions there, and I will watch for those and try to answer them if I can. There hasn't been a lot of questions yet, but anyway, uh, it's kind of cool. I don't have anything to plug right now. I just came back from scale. I'm going to be down in Tijuana uh, next weekend, but uh, probably people won't see me there. Uh, I don't really have any – I have I have a couple conferences coming up. I have, uh, I have uh, uh, OSCON coming up in Portland. I also have uh, – uh, the Pearl Conference in, I think it's Austin, Texas this year. Is it Austin? No, it's Houston. Houston, Texas. Same, same thing, right? No, not, not entirely. <laughs> and, uh, oh, you, you just offended millions. I know. <laughs> <laughs> what, but they're, but they're, not, they're not near here, so it's okay. Uh, and, and what do you want to plug there, Jonathan? Uh, yeah, I'll mention two things. So uh, both of them are actually Hackaday related. First off, um, I get to also co-host the Hackaday podcast later today. And that'll go live in a couple of days, I think. 
And then I've got the normal Friday morning security column where we'll dive deeper into some of these topics that we discussed today. So if you didn't get enough information about the uh, the AMD and the Intel bugs and, and uh, all of those things, check it out on Friday. I will have done my homework even more thoroughly by then, and we'll talk about it again. Cool, cool, cool. And uh, again, uh, thank you for stepping up the last second and uh, covering for the snafu that I had with not getting email to my uh, my guest today. Uh, but we'll get him back on. Uh, we'll put it back on. It'll probably end up at the end of this list. Um, but uh, it'll probably be sometime in uh, in May or April, whatever is coming up next after that. Uh, must yeah. be May because we're already up to yeah. We're, we're already through April already. So yeah, okay. Anyway, uh, so that was that's been fun. Um, again, um, uh, I'm, I'm using my, my not so good camera, but I'm using my great mic. So that's the important thing. I've got my blue Yeti. So I'm happy with the sound. I'm not so happy with the picture. Uh, I don't have my fez. My fez is in Tijuana, but I'll get to that in a week and a half when I get back down there. And, uh, that's probably all I've got to say. So we'll see you all again next week on Philosophy Weekly. <laughs>